Thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to be here, and particularly here at Oxford, where I, I have all these memories from my time at the Commonwealth when I ran, ran a big conference over at Christchurch. Uh, uh, terror comes back to me from those <laughs> moments, but uh, it's really great to be here. I'm honored that Professor Akande has managed in his busy schedule <laughs> to be here, so thanks, Dapo. Um, so I'm going to, um, I'm very much looking forward to the discussion. Uh, my presentation is going to be very eclectic today because I decided to uh, touch on a variety of topics um, to, to spur the, the conversation uh, that are loosely tied together because they're all about the development of rule of, of law mechanisms, if you will, at the international level which is something we, we don't really focus on because they're all different things, but they are all tied to the fact that while rule of law is traditionally something we look about at in terms of domestic systems and its, its crucial, crucial importance to the proper functioning of domestic systems and democracies, but we have seen that concept now um, being raised to the international level. So that's what I'm going to touch on uh, today. Three examples of what I think uh, our rule of law um, measures that have been adopted at the international level. And I'm going to highlight a little bit of the background of them, some of the benefits, some of the challenges. And I guess the question is, uh, overall, are these sustainable mechanisms for the international context? Um, and also, interestingly, I, I'm always a bit embarrassed when my uh, CV is read out because of what it does evidence is that I have difficulty holding down a job. Um, and so, uh, interestingly, uh, a bit weirdly, some of the, each of these developments at some part of my career I had an intersection with, so it's a, a bit of a personal reflection today as well. I'm going to begin with what I think is obviously the most important rule of law um, development, most, one of the most important developments in international law in uh, recent times, and that is the advent of the international tribunals and courts to deal with uh, a law-based reaction to conflict, a law-based reaction to horrific crime. And uh, the, the source of, the, of that idea of responding in that way, the most important step forward, of course, came with Nuremberg and Tokyo and the tribunals that were set up at that time. And what I think we forget sometimes when we look at this whole area is what a momentous step that was. So if you think about Europe at the time, particularly, absolutely devastated. We, we see the aftermath of crises today in, in Syria and Iraq. That was Europe at that time. And the fact that they opted for a rule of law solution versus uh, a simple uh, summary executions, for example, probably would have been militarily quite justified. That was a momentous sea change in terms of how the world was looking at responses to conflict and violence. Unfortunately, the promise of Nuremberg and Tokyo was lost shortly afterwards. There, there was hope at the time of the charter negotiations for the UN that we would establish right then a permanent court for the uh, um, assessment of individual responsibility for crime and uh, in the context of conflict particularly. Uh, however, and interestingly, one of the big things that um, prevented moving forward with that was, interestingly enough, the crime of aggression and the fact that there could be no agreement achieved at the time on how to handle that in terms of a, of a court. So what we got was the ICJ, but we did not get a chamber uh, that dealing with individuals. And, and the, the result of that was that for many years, in the 70s, in the 80s, 
um, some of you too, too young to remember this, we had a period of, we're basically in the face of horrific crime, the gravest crimes, there was not even the possibility of international justice. I always give the example of Idi Amin. Uh, there were many Idi Amins, but that man lived out his life peacefully in exile in Saudi Arabia, uh, and the victims never had a chance, never had an opportunity. And today, fortunately, we've come to a point where not only is it a possibility, but there is a probability. Uh, I'm endlessly optimistic. There is a probability that those kinds of crimes will be addressed. And what changed uh, came about through a number of factors, and it's the interesting question, I think. Does it have to be a particularly um, fortunate set of circumstances politically to get this kind of development? Um, and perhaps it does. We had, first of all, the sense suddenly growing in the 1980s and 90s that these kinds of crimes are a global responsibility. This is not something that individual states should have to deal with and address themselves. We had a uh, coming to the fore of that concept and what we began to see was the use of extraterritorial jurisdiction for the prosecution of these crimes. The classic Pinochet um, case, which uh, sort of was the breakthrough case in terms of demonstrating the potential but there were, at the time, many instances of the use of extraterritorial jurisdiction. For example, my first foray into the world of international law was I was uh, asked as a prosecutor in Winnipeg. I come from Winnipeg. Um, I was asked to go to Ottawa and to join the uh, Canada's newly formed Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes section back in the early, late 1980s, which had been formed because we had the issue of individuals in the country who were accused of having committed crimes during World War II. That was the impetus for us. And all over the world, we saw that starting um, at that time. So there was that factor. There was also the factor that we... Oh, I long for the days. We lived in a time when the Security Council actually had an interest, aside from their own individual self-interests, uh, and was actually captivated by the concept of justice uh, in, in terms of their responsibility in dealing with international threats to peace and security. And so we saw that remarkable step of the formation of the two uh, tribunals, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, um, bringing to the forefront this whole concept of justice and rule of law being a component of uh, the Security Council's work in conflict uh, resolution. And we also had, uh, interestingly, the Trinidad and Tobago, the tiny Caribbean state, resurrecting the concept of the international, permanent international criminal court before the ILC, and it resulted in the negotiations that led to the establishment of the International Criminal Court. Uh, and I was fortunate to participate in those negotiations uh, in both New York and in Rome. And, and it was miraculous that we managed to establish the ICC. It is something that today we would not be able to do. And so again, it raises that question, what do you need in place in the international framework and the political sense in order to, uh, to establish these kinds of rule of law mechanisms? So we entered the 21st century very hopeful. Um, we're at the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the Rome Statute this year. Um, we had the strongest position in terms of uh, these courts and tribunals at that time. 
and the news is not so good today in that we have we still have the institutions but we have mounting challenges um, not just to this whole concept of accountability and, and justice but it's part of a larger um, challenge in terms of the rule of law more generally across international circles um, and I, I think before I talk a bit about those challenges I'd like to reinforce though that what a remarkable accomplishment this should encourage us that we achieved this court, that we achieved where we are in a relatively short period of time. When I first went to, this, to the Security Council work as ombudsperson in the UN, I'll never forget this, a young man that I worked with, a political officer there, uh, I was telling him about the Rome Statute negotiations, about the drama, about the miracle that we were able to get this consensus that night in Rome. And he said, you know, I'm just fascinated by this because for me, for my generation, the International Criminal Court is a given. And I was really struck by that and I hope that that remains to be the case, but it's going to fall to many of you in this room to see to it that that is, is the case. Um, but we've seen since, uh, since Rome and since uh, the uh, coming into force the Rome Statute and the work of the tribunals, uh, we've seen the fragility of the, this kind of a mechanism. And there are many threats to, to it. As I say, because of things like the security threats, I think, um, terrorism, the conflict situations, migration perhaps, there is a culture now where there's a real pushback um, and marginalization of the rule of law because those are seen as not pragmatic solutions. The rule of law is not seen as the way to deal with these, these threats and individuals feel insecure and we, we, we feel that threat. In the resolutions these days at the UN, it is a battle to get any kind of reference to the term rule of law in every single resolution. That's a frightening scenario. So we have that in the big picture. We have the election of governments, quite frankly, democratic governments who are openly advancing policies that are contrary to the rule of law. That's a very frightening concept and how do we address that and bring that in, into our consistency with our views on, on democracy. And we have a very polarized political world and we're back in the Cold War, um, which was what ended and allowed for the court. It's like these windows keep opening and closing, you know, open and closed. Right now that window is not only closed, it's shut with nails, I think, for the moment anyway. And we also have some of the things dealing with the, the actual justice systems and how they function. For example, the international criminal uh, tribunals um, demonstrated that these rule of law mechanisms are very costly and they take a long time. And for some states, that's become a big issue. Is it worth it? Is it worth it uh, to have the cost? The ICTY and the ICTR were very expensive. I think, having you know, I'm biased, of course, I served as a judge at the ICTY, but I think they did an amazing job. Uh, I think in the long term, they will be seen as important steps forward in, in this context, but they did cost a huge amount of the 30% of the UN budget in the, high, in the heyday of the ICTY and ICTR. That's a big chunk of uh, funds, and of course, we all know the, the stories of how long these cases took. I'm very proud of mine, which was the biggest trial that was done at the ICTY uh, in terms of number of accused, seven accused in the Popovich case, four years, which uh, seems long, but was record-breaking in many ways. Uh, it's still fair, so there, are, there can be efficiencies, but it's not been seen. And the ICC, well, Again, very proud to be a judge of the ICC. I think it's an incredibly important institution, 
but realistically, we all know there are huge challenges for the, for the court. It's been in its teenage years, and it has all the problems of a teenager, um, struggling to find its way. Um, and there are lots of uh, particular challenges, efficiencies, delay, this perception of selective justice, the Africa question, uh, the difficulty of, of the court pursuing cases in live conflict situation, uh, and obtaining state cooperation, and of course we've had withdrawals. Fortunately, most of them have come back, and now we have some <laughs> rather large countries with rather large nuclear arsenals that uh, are not particularly fond of the court because of the opening of certain investigations. So um, that's only going to bring a more challenging future uh, for the ICC. Uh, so we we see that all those those. Uh, factors, but I think um, we must remain optimistic. I'm Canadian, so I'm always optimistic. Uh, if you live in that country and deal with the climate, you must be optimistic. So I do think that, that we will advance forward. I think these things are sea changes that go back and forth in terms of the political climates, I hope. Um, and I just, I'm going to throw out for our discussion just a few of my thoughts uh, before I move on to, to another topic on some of the, the ways forward. Um, first of all, I think we have to clarify what the International Criminal Court represents and why it is relevant even well beyond states' parties to the Rome Statute. And that is the, the whole concept, uh, the whole Rome Statute didn't create a standalone court. As you all know, it created a system, a system that recognizes that the first responsibility to investigate and prosecute these crimes rests with states. And that is the aspect of the Rome Statute system, and it never gets sufficient attention. The former prosecutor of the court once said, and it's been famously requoted, that the court would be most successful if it never had a case before it. Now, we're a long way from that, uh, but those who oppose the court, those who do not wish to join the court, um, large states, small states, whoever it may be, they cannot be opposed to what the court represents and what that system represents, which is we must bring an end to impunity, we must investigate and prosecute these crimes. So if they, they wish to um, use their energy, what we have to advocate with those states is use your energy to advocate then for the positive, for the prosecution investigation of these crimes, for justice solutions within the states, and the court will have no reason to intervene. Uh, and that kind of a conversation I don't think is sufficiently taking place. Whenever there's an attack, it's not the ICC's fault that there are states where there's no possibility of justice. So if you don't want the court to intervene, then why aren't you addressing those gaps? And one of the biggest challenges that isn't being addressed, I think it's one of the biggest failures in 20 years of the, the Rome Statue. I don't think it's the court's functioning. It's the absence of any dedicated effort towards capacity building in this area. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, my former office, has permanent programs on counterterrorism, on um, uh, drug trafficking, on uh, corruption, on organized crime, all very important. It has not a single program on helping states build their capacity to prosecute the gravest crimes. Why is that? I, I just was in Vienna at the Crime Commission. I asked that very question. I didn't get an answer. I'll tell you if I hear from anyone. Um, so that, I think, is, is one of the first things. Secondly, for the, there must be action vis-a-vis -vis the ICC itself. It falls to the judges of the court. I certainly take that responsibility very seriously 
to continue institution building. We can't just sit on our cases, that's very important, but we must be building the institution and in particular, we must build on the procedural aspect of the court, which is still inconsistent from case to case. We still have this clash of common law and civil law. It has to be about bringing those two systems together, drawing the best from both, uh, and improving the ability of the court, particularly in terms of efficiency. That was the platform of the previous presidency of the court, and I very much hope the new presidency will continue it, the efforts of the judiciary uh, and the Office of the Prosecutor to make this court uh, representative of a court that brings fair and efficient justice, and that will help us enormously in advancing the case. Uh, but also uh, cooperation. This is a major, major problem uh, with the court. Now, let me say this. Um, what I can say is the cooperation system of the Rome Statute, Part 9, having been one of the drafters, it's beautiful. It's beautifully designed. However, it didn't quite envisage the political context. Uh, we were a bunch of cooperation geeks. What did we know? Uh, that in which this court was going to have to operate. And so we did not envisage a situation where states parties, we had this whole referral system. If you don't cooperate, you get referred to the assembly of states parties. And we were used to assemblies like at, at, in Vienna at the, on the corruption convention where the states are quite willing to yell at each other and call each other out for failures. Apparently the ASP has two facilitations, one on cooperation, the assembly of states parties of the ICC, one on cooperation, one on non-cooperation. They never talk about the non-cooperation cases. Why is that? We didn't envisage that. States' parties have to start to take that seriously. We didn't envisage a Security Council. We also created a referral process to the Security Council. That should be scary to states. It should be scary. It's the Security Council. Apparently not. Uh, and we didn't envisage that the Council, well, first of all, nobody thought that the Security Council would ever refer a case to the ICC. I, you could have gone around that room in Rome that night and not a single person, we put the provision in, we're thinking uh, with the opposition of at least half the Security Council, never going to see it. Okay, we were wrong. <laughs> uh, we saw it within very short order uh, in uh, Sudan and then in, in Libya. But what we didn't envisage was that, that the Council would be prepared to refer these cases and then do nothing and have blatant, blatant disregard for a Security Council resolution by states and do nothing about that. And people say that's a, that brings the court into disrepute. That raises credibility questions for the court. I say that raises credibility questions for the Security Council. What is the power of their resolutions if Libya and Sudan can simply ignore them? But we don't make enough emphasis on that point, and uh, I think we should. Uh, and of course, I'm going to be very cautious as I talk about this third cooperation issue, of course. <laughs> Professor Akande in the room particularly, uh, but it's sub-judiciary at the moment, the, the ICC Appeals Chamber will rule on the, on the Jordan case, the Bashir issue, the issue of immunities. Uh, what I will say, because I've written on this, is um, we, didn't we didn't envisage the interpretation that has been accorded to either Article 98 or, or uh, 27. The international cooperation geeks, again, that des designed the famous Article 98, we're very practice focused and what we were thinking of was a situation where you get a, you get a, you're served with a subpoena to search an embassy, so an already existing obligation to another state. How, how do you respond to that? Or 
you are hosting a big summit of some sort. And in the middle of the summit, the ICC, in a dramatic move, un un releases a sealed indictment against one of the leaders. That's what we were thinking about. Nobody was thinking that you would create your own situation of a conflict of obligation. So that's all I'll say, because as I say, it's subjudici, but we have to find a road forward to deal with that immunities question, and I'm very confident that, that the case law will, will develop that. But cooperation remains a major challenge. And then the last point before, before the next topic, the last thing that the court needs desperately is we must achieve better jurisdictional reach. The goal towards universal <coughs> adherence to the Rome Statute remains, has to remain the primary goal because otherwise we face this continuing credibility problem. Why Africa? Why not Syria? Why not Yemen? Why not Myanmar? Uh, the, the list continues to grow. Um, and and there's, there's a very simple answer, and that is jurisdiction. But the perception, the, you can answer that all you want, the perception remains and it weakens the court. Now, I, I applaud the efforts of uh, Prosecutor Ben Suda right now, who is doing everything she can, particularly in Myanmar, to try and see if we have some kind of jurisdiction based on where these uh, refugees have gone. Um, but the real solution there is uh, universality. So I thought those are my ideas, but I hope you, the younger generation, has other ideas of how we can support this, the most important um, step forward in terms of the rule of law at the uh, international level. I'm going to move briefly to a topic that's one of my favorites. That, uh, I'm just going to talk about it briefly, but nobody talks about it a lot, and it's um, an interesting rule of law development at the international level, and that is the Security Council um, being a lawmaker. Now, one of the things that wasn't achieved under the Charter, one of the other things we didn't achieve, was any body that could legislate international law. We got the ILC, which of course is, plays a very important role, but there was talk of some form of legislating of international law, and it just simply it was too hard, it remains too hard, and maybe that's a good thing. But then it's a little surprising then to see that we have had instances where the Security Council has made law, albeit it doesn't, it doesn't perhaps get the focus. So the instances I would highlight, the first one, of course, is the creation of the tribunals themselves. That was the first foray into lawmaking by the Security Council. Now, of course, there's the, the, the issue that did get attention at the time, which was, is the creation of this, these tribunals within the power and the mandate of the Security Council? I don't, unsurprisingly, I think, uh, when the, the, the tribunal itself considered that question in Tadich, okay, it's them themselves with the brand new job, um, they, they decided, of course, the Security Council had the jurisdiction. Um, it's an interesting decision, the Tadich decision, but I, I think that, that was not surprising. Uh, but what, uh, what people overlooked was the, the, what the Security Council also did was they mandated a change in law across the world because I, at the time, was head of the International Assistance Group in Canada, and I woke up one morning to find out that I had to be able to surrender individuals and to surrender evidence to this new tribunal. And of course, I had no law that would permit me to do so. For seven years, I operated in fear that I was going to get a request. We got many requests from the ICTY and the ICTR, but none of them required compulsory measures. We, we mostly interviewed witnesses. We would cajole people into coming out to the, to the interviews. But had we had a suspect 
in Canada, we would have been in serious trouble because we were in breach of the resolution for seven years. And Canada's pretty responsible, so you can imagine world over, there were a lot of states in breach simply because the council had, had created law, in essence, uh, that states then had to catch up in terms of uh, um, changing their legal systems. I have an interesting um, postscript to that. They changed the law after the year I left Canada. I think it was deliberate. I, I don't know, but I, I feel a bit, you know, that it was. Um, more troubling in my, in my sense, the, the tribunals, you know, very important step forward in international law. The more interesting and intriguing area where the Security Council has done most of its lawmaking is in counterterrorism. So the famous, uh, along with 1267, the famous uh, 1373 resolution um, adopted uh, almost two weeks or just two weeks after 9-11 and it, um, when you look at it now, it was a shocking foray into lawmaking by the Security Council. Um, I was at the Comsec at the time, and um, suddenly I'm, you know, everyone's, I'm head of criminal law, but suddenly I'm supposed to be like a terrorism expert. So um, we were examining the resolution to try and advise our states, our member states, on how to implement it. And it said things like um, the, the decisions, Chapter 7 decision. Uh, decides that states shall refrain from providing any support to terrorism, including by suppressing recruitment. Well, the big question we had was, did you mean that at the macro level? Were you just speaking to states, the like state-sponsored terrorism, or do you actually expect states to have criminal offenses to this effect? In the end, we couldn't take the risk, so we were advising all of our states, uh, you better enact criminal offenses to this effect, because it appears that that's what the council's asking for. But the most um, significant of that uh, resolution, the, the opening provision which mandated openly that all states going forward had to have the offense of terrorist financing and all states had to have the capacity to freeze assets of terrorists. And at that point in time, I would say with the exception of the United States and maybe a couple of others, nobody had yet, the terrorist financing convention was there, it had very few parties, Nobody had that um, capacity, so that was a direct action by the council in lawmaking. And they have subsequently, in recent time, um, we all thought that would be limited to 1373, that kind of action, um, because it was post 9-11, and I, I mean, I remember the time period, it was whatever the US wanted at that point they were going to get in the council. Uh, but recently they managed, uh, they, I mean, the, the, again, the, those states advocating for this, and it's a large group of states, in 2014 with the adoption of 21, Resolution 2178, uh, which is on foreign terrorist fighters, uh, and mandates the creation of offenses uh, related to those who are going or attempting to travel who, or who travel to other states in order to commit terrorist acts, and a whole bunch of related um, supporting those individuals, all of those by mandate, Chapter 7, uh, the Security Council requiring states to have those laws. And they have followed up recently, last year, with a, a second resolution, 2396. They're very interesting if you want to take a look at them. Uh, just reiterating all of those obligations and also providing some additional obligations in terms of airline information. Now, I don't oppose those kinds of measures. I think there are different views on whether you should create criminal offenses, whether you should take a more um, a rehabilitative approach in the case of foreign terrorist fighters. Those are big policy issues. 
Uh, I think given the terrorist attacks uh, in Europe and elsewhere, there were strong justifications for why you might want to take those measures. But the question I throw out is, is it appropriate to use the Security Council to do this? Is it better to do this by convention? Because, for example, does the little tiny island state of Kiribati, spelled Kiribati, but it's pronounced Kiribati, um, does that, do they really need legislation amongst their legislative priorities? Do they need to legislate on foreign terrorist fighters? Does, you know, does South America, which quite frankly has a lot of issues, but not necessarily foreign terrorist fighters. Um, so the question is not the legitimacy of the policy position, it's is this a proper role for the Security Council? It's an interesting rule of law role, but is it the right role? I throw that out there. I move to my final, my final in this eclectic mishmash, um, my interesting time as the first ombudsperson for the Security Council Al-Qaeda Sanctions Committee. And this unquestionably is a rule of law mechanism that's about can we introduce fundamental fair, fair process protections at the international level and in particular in relation to the actions of the most powerful body, the Security Council. And that's the whole story of uh, the ombudsperson. And the question today is, is, is it sustainable? It is there, we did do it, it is working, but is it sustainable? I, I don't know. Uh, so let me, a little bit of background, some of you may already know the story of the, the ombudsperson, but uh, it was born ironically from the fact that the Security Council actually uh, was very concerned about the um, negative humanitarian consequences of its use of the powers it had for sanctions. So in the situation of the invasion by Iraq of Kuwait, uh, massive sanctions were imposed, comprehensive sanctions were imposed on Iraq which had deadly humanitarian consequences in terms of the sh food shortage and then there was a scandal at the UN over the administration of the process. So uh, it caused, and the Security Council to their credit even spoke publicly about this and they migrated or migrate, they moved to a um, different process with sanctions, and that was the use of what we refer to as targeted or smart sanctions. So rather than imposing the sanctions on an entire society, they imposed them on political leaders, on uh, factions or on uh, sectors, uh, particular industries. When they saw a threat to peace and security, they would direct it towards where they thought they could best target um, that, that particular threat and in some instances on individuals, including non-state <coughs> actors. They did this in the former Yugoslavia, in Haiti. Uh, so this became their new approach. So when in uh, 1998, there were the terrible bombings, terrorist attacks in uh, East Africa, Tanzania and Kenya, uh, the American embassies were, um, there were bombs exploded there and, and many dead and injured. Uh, the investigation uh, indicated that Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda had carried out those uh, attacks. And as a result, they were at the time, or at least uh, bin Laden and most of Al-Qaeda was hiding out in Afghanistan. So rather than imposing um, sanctions on the innocent people of Afghanistan to try and get them to turn bin Laden over, uh, they uh, targeted the Taliban in the famous, or infamous, depending on your perspective, Resolution 1267, adopted in 1999. They set up a committee that was responsible to identify who the Taliban membership was, and they imposed the three classic measures. 
an asset freeze, um, a weapons prohibition, and an international travel ban. So on whoever got listed. Um, it, originally, there wasn't much reaction to this listing process, and the numbers were quite small. In 1999, though, they made a very, well, it turned out to be quite a significant amendment, but it was a small one at the time. They extended the sanctions from just the Taliban to Osama bin Laden himself and members of al-Qaeda. And that was a momentous step because it was the first time the council was using its sanctions power in relation to non-state actors with no territorial attachment, no particular geographic attachment. Al-Qaeda by its nature is global. That was a huge, that's why the, the fair process issue became so significant. So 9-11 happens, small list, huge list. Within, within days, hundreds of names went on to the 1267 list. And suddenly you had situations, and this actually happened, people going down to their banks, trying to move their funds, being told all your assets are frozen, we don't know why, and we don't know how you get them unfrozen. That was literally the situation that hundreds of people were in all over the globe. It wasn't in any way isolated anymore to Afghanistan, and a lot of it aimed at financiers, because that became the, the that was the focus uh, at the time, and that became the, the subject of many listings. So you, you're facing this, um, one of the people I talked to during the course of my five years talked about it as being the civil law version of the death penalty uh, in terms of your civil rights because you have, you're completely um, stuck. And um, the only recourse was to have your country take the case forward. Well, as I always say when I'm speaking to this, that's great if you're Swedish because the Swedes are going to you know, take you seriously, do something, and they did, in fact, take a couple of cases forward to the Security Council and advocate. Everybody else, you're, you're pretty well out of luck, just to put it, uh, put it mildly. Um, so the, the situation was untenable, and thankfully, there were academics, there was civil society, and there was Kofi Annan, Secretary General of the United Nations, who actually took a strong interest in this subject, and they began to advocate together uh, and on this point that you, the Security Council cannot act contrary to fundamental principles of human rights. There must be a fair process associated to these sanctions. Um, that led to some changes, so they, they began to give reasons for the listings. You can see them now, all, they're all up on the, on the internet. They gave notice as best they could after the measures would be imposed. But where they still faltered was they gave no independent recourse and remedy, and that remained the situation. They created a focal point, very nice person, she, she, but all she could do was forward them the, your request so you could communicate directly. Uh, forwarded to the council on the committee, but nothing else. And so it was left to the courts, um, and you could have seen this coming. And I keep telling, whenever I speak, they won't extend this mechanism to other targeted sanction regimes. And I keep saying, you could have seen it coming the last time around. Why can't you see it coming again? Because the courts, bad facts, bad law. So regardless of what the charter says, regardless of the Security Council trumping, the courts are not going to stand for this kind of violation of fundamental rights, and that's exactly what happened. The European Court of Justice, not even the European Court of Human Rights, the UCJ, the internal court of the, uh, of the European Union, case of Caddy, Mr. Caddy was a Saudi millionaire, went on the list shortly after it was uh, created, 
and sat there for 10 years, brought an action in the ECJ, not an EU citizen, um, struck down, led to the striking down of all the implementing legislation of the European Union for the Security Council sanctions. Well, that got attention in New York City. And it led to the creation of the position I then occupied, the ombudsperson position. Um, very interesting process, very detailed process that the Security Council created. So three-phase process. First, uh, the petitioners write directly to me, uh, or my successor, I'll just say me, personalize it, but it was subsequently my successor. Um, they, and a very simple test of whether they, they could present, they would answer why they, they thought they should come off the list. And then I would start by asking for all the information from all the relevant states, um, states of residence, nationality, the state that put the name onto the list. Um, gather all that information um, and then proceed into the second phase, the most interesting phase, which is the dialogue phase, where you actually live up to those principles of fair process. The person's right to know the case against them, to have a chance to answer it and be heard. Uh, and so what I would do is I would forward everything I'd gathered to the petitioner, subject to anything confidential, and I would then engage usually through a face-to-face -face meeting with the petitioners. And what was so remarkable was a number of times people said to me, I've been on this list for many years. This is the first time anyone's asked me any questions. First time anyone's given me a chance. That is the heart of the rule of law and fair process finally being recognized in, in relation to this, uh, to this measure. And then you ta I'd take all the information and I would put it into a comprehensive report that went back to the Security Council's committee for their decision. Now, interestingly, when I first got there, I had no power to make a recommendation, and if one member of the committee, uh, one of the 15, which parallels the composition of the Security Council, objected, that was the end of the day. Uh, even, if I, even if the nature of my report and my observations uh, was such that the person should be delisted, one state stops it. So very early on, I started to say, listen, guys, you know, I'm doing my best here, but in terms of this fair process problem that you're trying to address and get the courts out of your hair, this is never going to work. And to my shock, well, it wasn't just me. There were a number of states that realized they had a big problem, including France and the United Kingdom, of potential conflict of obligations to the Security Council and to their courts. Uh, the first renewal, they gave um, me the power to make recommendations. And secondly, most importantly, they provided that if the ombudsperson recommends delisting, even if there's no consensus in the, council, the committee, 60 days later, the person or entity comes off the list, unless all 15 disagree or it goes up to the Security Council for a vote. And in the time this position's been in place, which is almost eight years now, it's never happened. That means the independent review mechanism functions as the um, resolver gives the remedy, uh, which is remarkable, remarkable step forward in terms of fair process. So um, it's, it's been a very successful mechanism. I think it's up to about um, 74, 75 cases that have gone through. Um, almost 70% of those have resulted in delistings. You can see this, the stats are up. Uh, they continue to change. their up on the website. Uh, a lot of that was during my term simply because there was a lot of, as the Danish ambassador once coined the term, low-hanging fruit. Uh, cases that just needed someone to look at them and, and they, uh, you know, it was apparent. Uh, but it, the, it also has been a real change in how the Security Council approaches these listings. Because at the beginning, the, the, the nature of the information 
uh, was difficult to um, determine uh, as to the basis, and now that there, that there's very clear statements surrounding each of the listings. Um, so it's been quite a remarkable uh, step forward. Uh, some of the interesting challenges, though, when, again, going back to this whole concept of when you take a rule of law mechanism and put it into the international context, I had no law to apply. So the Security Council, not a big law body, uh, well, except when they're lawmaking, uh, as I mentioned earlier. But uh, so they, they, they set down a really good process, but they, they didn't tell me two fundamental things. What standard do I review the information to? I knew it wasn't criminal, so reasonable, beyond reasonable doubt was out of, out of the window, but what was the standard? Um, so I didn't want to just take something from the common law or take something from the civil law, so I made it up. Okay, I admit that. I made it up. Uh, but nobody was telling me and nobody objected. I told them, okay, this is what I think I'm going to do. And I did, I did some research, uh, but it was just me at the time, by the way. I, you know, 75 cases, it was me for two and a half years, nobody else. I, I had wonderful um, students from Columbia who would come and help me, but that was it. Uh, there's now a legal officer and, and an assistant. But um, basically, I took concepts that are known in both legal traditions and I came up with the test of whether there's sufficient information to provide a reasonable and credible basis for the listing. And that's the, I, in fact I've gotten some compliments from British courts anyway on that particular test but I think it's a good test and it sets the right balance uh, for, you know, it's not criminal process but at the same time it's serious measures. And the second issue I had was what kind of review because you know there's classic administrative review which means you ask the question, at the time of the listing, was the decision reasonable? Well, I don't think I'd have been in the job very long if I'd have decided to ask whether what the Security Council's committee had done was reasonable. So instead, I opted for the, um, a de novo review, asking the question today, based on the available information, is it sufficient uh, to provide a reasonable and credible basis? And that also had, uh, it was unquestionably the right choice, not only because of the, the issues with the, the committee, but also it was beneficial to the petitioners. Because I had several petitioners who said, yeah, I was, I was a part of Al-Qaeda, I was a supporter of Al-Qaeda, but I've changed. And classic judicial review, you couldn't deal with those cases. I was able to then to say, you know, they don't, they don't continue to meet the test. Um, I'm going to bring it to close there. There were all sorts of interesting issues. I'm happy to discuss some of them. Um, I had questions because I was making law up. Uh, what do I do when the allegation is that the listing is supported, is based on torture information? What do I do if it's about speech? Um, so again, I was, you know, uh, making my own little law there. Unfortunately, the reports are all confidential. So I can tell you that some of the law findings, but um, the details are, are all in those reports. Uh, the question of extension, I've already highlighted. It's still percolating out there. The Swiss have a pending case right now, Aldalumi, where I think they're going to be told that the listing was, um, is not supportable and the, the, the company's still listed, and I don't know what they do. That's in the other targeted sanction regimes, of which there are 14. Uh, and uh, there's also still a big debate about, is this enough? Well, it's the best we're going to do in this political climate, but there's still the question, is it enough? And very sadly, there is the situation that for seven months that position has sat open. It's vacant. There is no ombudsperson at the moment. I've been screaming about it. The EU is screaming about it. Like-minded states is screaming about it. But the political impasse in the Security Councils, once again, and the actions of the Secretariat, 
don't get me started, um, has left us with no ombudsperson and it's, uh, it's going to end up back in the EU courts uh, unless something happens soon. Uh, the, my successor very validly has gone on to the Syrian mechanism, so uh, it's not on Catherine's head, but there we are. Um, so those are just some of the, some of the, the thoughts I have. But so in, in bringing to a close and opening for discussion, um, I think we see these are just some examples, uh, but it raises this very interesting question of how far can we go with rule of law at the international level? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Uh, and how can we sustain where we think it's a really important thing? How can we sustain going forward these important rule of law mechanisms that we have developed? Thank you.